welcome to Boston Basic Income. I'm Alex Howlett. This week's topic is sovereign money or basic income and sovereign money, which is the title of this book by Jeff Crocker. And his idea is that we can use debt-free government-created money to fund a basic income. So in here, we talk a lot about consumer monetary theory and about the government issuing new money into the economy. So there's some similarities there. One of the big differences is the idea of this debt-free aspect of money. And sovereign money is, um, there are various movements that are trying to establish systems where all of the money in the economy is created by the government rather than through banks. So if you have a deposit in your deposit account, that's really an IOU for the actual government issued money. So you get the government issued money when you withdraw money from your bank account and the deposits in your deposit account are just promises by the bank. So the idea with the sovereign money movement is that a lot of people kind of want to do away with that. From Jeff Crocker's perspective in particular, he's not too much worried about private money creation in the economy. What he mostly wants to do is he, is he wants to create additional government-issued money as a way of funding basic income. And he believes that by doing this, you don't have to create as much money through debt. And that's either private sector debt in the banking system or government debt. So he, he sees it as a solution to both, like you don't have to have as much national debt or as big of a private financial sector. So we read, uh, some of us read a couple of different articles. They're both from 2014. The first one is by Mark Joab. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, but I might not be. And it's, uh, it's just a description of the sovereign money initiative in Switzerland. So there was a, a push in Switzerland and they had a referendum saying, you know, like banks aren't allowed to create money anymore. We want the government to create all our money. Uh, it didn't end up passing, but it was, it was a big thing for a little while. And then the second one is an article by Jeff Crocker entitled The Economic Necessity of Basic Income. And he actually isn't using the term sovereign money at this point, but this article actually appears largely in this book. And he's kind of adopted the sovereign money name and the sovereign money perspective this book came out this year in 2020. So between 2014 and 2020, he said, oh, these sovereign money people, what they're talking about is close enough, close enough to what I'm talking about that uh, I want to attach myself to, to that concept. So I want to start by going around the room and asking the question, to what extent does it make sense? Is there, is there such a thing as debt-free money? Can the government issue money without there being some kind of debt? What does it mean for the government to be in debt? And can we use that to, to fund a basic income, to, to pay for a basic income in perhaps a way that we couldn't do if we were doing it through more traditional deficit spending? So I'm going to start with Derek and then Eddie and then Richard. Go ahead, Derek. I'm glad you gave a little bit of the background because that did strike me the sort of differences between the two um, approaches. It's a pretty big difference if you're going to say uh, there should be no private sector money creation um, versus, well, it, it's too much of it and we want to use government. We want to give more of a role for government, uh, government new money creation. It, um, so, yeah, that's interesting. And, I, and I, I'd like to hear, I'd have to read more about Jeffrey and hear his thoughts on the other sovereign money um, money movement because I think there's there's big problems if we start saying um, once we understand that sort of any lending going on in the economy has the potential to be money creation you know if you say if you say well you know banks should not be creating money okay well, that sort of sounds like wait banks create money that's sort of crazy but if you say um, banks should not be lending in the economy right that wouldn't make sense so I think there might be some some conceptual problems introduced there which which uh, 
the Jeffrey view, yeah, it doesn't have uh, to his credit in my view. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Uh, let's go to Eddie, Richard, and then Janae. Um, so I really love the Jeff Cocker article, and um, I agree with Derek that uh, you know lending is kind of fundamental to the economy, and it's it's a fundamental um, operation uh, within the co economy where you have um, savers on one side of the equation and dissavers or borrowers, which is the opposite of saving on the other side. Um, you know one wants to trade spending and one wants to spend and and dissave and the other wants to um, save and not spay, not spend um, even though they have money that they could spend but they want to save it instead uh, and that's that's not really something that I think would be a great idea to um, to make illegal like um, in, even when you regulate it uh, it's you know it's very common for shadow banking to to rise up um, where you have uh, you know banking uh, operating outside regulations you know e you know even even with the regulations that we, that we have now um, and I really loved about the article uh, that he talked about productivity growth um, I think most economists don't talk about um, the effect of productivity growth um, of you know reducing labor demand uh, all things being equal um, economists don't talk about that enough I think it's a very fundamental aspect of the modern economy um, and I would even go uh, just a step farther about that with him but um, yeah I'll, I'll just I'll just stop there now yeah Ooh, okay. Uh, that's a little teaser for later. What is that step farther? Uh, let's go to Richard, Janae, and then Austin. Well, in the in the Crocker article, he, he says that Britain doesn't want to be controlled by um, Brussels, have their money supply and dictated by Brussels. Well, it's already dictated by some people and they already have to pay money by the credit agencies, Moody's and all the other ones. And so they dictate how their how um how much bel belief they have in their the strength of the economy and things like that, and that affects the bond markets and the bonds are how much you have to the you have to under the current system you have to uh get bonds and they the bonds give you money to um <clears throat> to uh fund the economy the fund the government and the government in turn has to pay those bonds interest. And so either way, they have, they're being dictated to by something. Yeah, so that's an interesting point. If the government didn't issue bonds when they spent money, would they still have to pay the same amount of interest? We're gonna skip Janae um, because her reception is spotty. So we'll go to Austin and then Martin. Hey, um, yeah. So I didn't read the articles, but I have read Crocker's work previous. I may have read the article because I've read Crocker's work previously and I really like it. In fact, um, I would put him in my top three sort of favorite economic thinkers along with Alex and Steve Keen. Um, and uh, and what's, what I think, like when in that sort of triangle, right, of thinkers, I think you get it when you start looking at, at this sort of um, really fundamental thinking about money, I think it, it's like we're in the middle of a Cambrian explosion of economic thinking. I think there's gonna be, a, because there's so many ways that this idea of sovereign money can run. Like, like there's too many tangents, so I won't go on, go on all of them,
but I think that, that there's two that I'll do. One is the, the what's the difference between a debt and a promise? Because when crockers are issuing debt-free money, it's still a promise of some kind. Like the government's pro promising to accept it as taxes or for payment of fines, um, or you know, if the and then even beyond that, if the government built housing that it was then going to you know um, or sell into the market or lease to people at a, at a subsidized rate they would accept this money as rent and so on so there's that there's this sort of fuzzy line between what's a debt and and what's a promise and there's overlap there right and the other thing is um the other thing i mentioned was steve Kane, and he is really good at talking about the role of private debt um in the economy right um and his solution, his, 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 so he's saying if, if money creation is only happening in the private sector, then we're going to have this problem that the amount that's owed is always greater than the amount that's issued because banks charge more interest than they pay, right? I can see Alex shaking his head a little bit, so I'd, love to, I'd like to hear what he, how, I, I'm, I think, and what, what, the reason I find Steve King's arguments really um, convincing is because he shows these strong correlations between debt creation and other other things in the economy, like between debt creation and employment, or debt create. So when people are borrowing money, um, that means that they're opening businesses and hiring people, right? And when they're paying back, paying down their debts, then they're often uh, firing people. And and you know, so there's 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 the role of private debt in the economy is really good, but it's also is really important, and it's also it's very positive in that it drives growth, but it comes with this um, uh, risk that the debt you know, chases the whole, the debt chases the economy as a whole down. And Steve Keane's solution is debt jubilees, which is a really direct way of solving this problem. The government just writes off debt every now and then, which goes back to, you know, ancient times. And when the king would ascend, he would, you know, cancel all the debts. Um, but I actually kind of think Crocker's solution is a little bit more graceful and interesting that you just put debt free, you put money that can pay those debts which without increasing those debts into the economy is a sort of, you know, um, uh, not, I want to use the term easing, but it sounds too much like quantitative, ease, quantitative easing, which it's, you know, so or QE for the people is the, is the language that was used by the British Labour Party under Corbyn, right? So there's, so I think that whole thing is really easy. It's, you know, this comes back to the basic idea of, the core idea of basic income, just give people money. So that, they, so that we can unlock the productive capacity in the economy. And so we can do that without everyone racking up debt, because at the moment we're using debt to do that. Crocker has these great graphs he shows where he looks at spending versus wages. And spending has overtaken wages. So the money's got to come from somewhere, and it's coming either from debt or from unearned income, which, and the unearned income is concentrated in a minority of the population. So this kind of solves... I think a lot of the problems and gives us a, without doing this fundamental, and you can just sort of slide it into the mix with, of the existing economy without sort of blowing everything up and shutting down all the banks and, and trying to change everything all at once. So I, I think it's a really interesting line of thought. Okay, cool. Uh, let's go to Martin. <clears throat> so when I'm thinking about this and I'm thinking I'm really qualified to, uh, to sort of answer the question and, uh, you know, if I, even by virtue of opinion, sort of. Um, <clears throat> I will, I've often had this idea that debt creation is a uh, sort of a disciplinary tool. It, it creates a certain discipline. Um, it, so, you know, one may work 
or engage in some sort of economic activity in order to meet certain basic needs. Um, and one might also uh, engage in those activities in order to pay off a debt. And that debt presumably was taken on for something that the individual values, a house, uh, business, uh, consumer items or whatever. Uh, but there's a certain, if your economy sort of functions that way, there's a certain discipline there in uh, uh, forced repayment uh, of the debt by norm and, and perhaps by law and all that sort of thing. Uh, <clears throat> and whether or not that's good or bad or, uh, I mean, other societies have perhaps worked a little bit differently um, than uh, say the sort of American society and this sort of connection between the American dream and so debt supported uh, purchase of uh, real uh, estate, uh, <clears throat> et cetera. So uh, that doesn't really get at the question of, you know, it, 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 the articles here. Um, but uh, maybe I'll just leave it there for, for right now and uh, see how the uh, discussion unfolds. Okay, great. So a lot of interesting points. I liked Derek's question, what is the difference between a debt and a promise? Uh, and I would say that a debt is a kind of promise. You're promising to pay. Austin's question, yeah. Or sorry, Austin. Well, who did I say? Did I say Derek? Austin, I'm sorry. I was looking at Austin and, and saying Derek. Um, yeah, so what is the difference between a debt and a promise? I think a debt is a kind of promise. So it's a promise to pay a certain amount of money, either at some point in the future or when that debt is demanded, that kind of thing. Another question we can ask is, what is the promise that backs up money in our system? And you, you mentioned, Austin, that there's a promise that you can use it to pay taxes. But I think the more fundamental promise that underlies money is the promise that it can claim a certain amount of goods and services from the economy. So the promise of price stability. Uh, and that's what the government enforces. So each individual money token can be used to claim a certain amount of goods and services from the economy. So that's a promise. Uh, and then the, so, so that's, that's actually thinking of base money as a form of debt. Uh, and then the other debts that are kind of further down in the money hierarchy, the money substitutes like your bank deposits and stuff like that, those are promises to, um, to pay a certain amount of, of a higher form of money. But oftentimes you can trade it just directly for the goods and services as well. Uh, go ahead, Austin. Yeah, so this is actually something I, 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 this was probably what I was planning on raising as my first point before everyone else got my brain, uh, sort of the synapses firing with their points. But okay. the, so this is where there's an interesting thing where I know you have, Alex diverges a little bit from MMT, where MMT says taxes are what, uh, you know, taxes validate currency. And you're like, well, that's one way to validate the currency, but um, there are other ways, you know, so if people, are, if people will accept it, it's, 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 if, it's, if you can spend it, it's money kind of, right? Um, but, I think, but I think the language you just used there where you say the, government's, the, the government promises that other people will accept it is almost part of it, right? And it's like, I think, and this is kind of why I think sometimes I like Crocker um, a little Crocker's view a little bit better than yours because he emphasizes the role of government a little bit more. Um, well, substantially more, right? It's all about the, the, the sovereignty of the nation and, and blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, and so it's like, you know, in Australia, we drive on the left-hand side of the road because the government says so, and the government will enforce that, but it doesn't have to very often. And as the, you know, and they like in China during the cultural revolution, all of a sudden they started using red. Someone said, no, we should use red to mean go at the traffic lights. Right. And there was chaos because it wasn't clear 
what this what the what the system was whether you whether red or green meant go right um and it's like one and so this is why we have a government because we need someone to set the rules so i don't think the government there doesn't have to be much contact with the government only has to fine a few people for driving on the wrong side of the road for us all to drive on the, the correct side right um almost said the right side but that would have been ambiguous anyhow the um uh and so the t taxes and fines are that point of contact and because we're all like yeah i agree i i think there should be a government i'm fine with there being laws we're not all we're not 99 percent anarchists we all kind of go along with it so the, the, we like who else but the government would tell us what is the currency to accept right the government is an extension of the population so i think the role of government in crocker's thing is and and the role of government in, in deciding what we accept in the market is really important i love these points and i particularly like that you brought up the china example because what happened was that the government said that everybody needs to start uh you start going when the when the traffic light is red uh and then everyone got really confused and there were plenty of accidents and then and then they backed up and i think i think what this emphasizes is that there's something more powerful than government which is that if you have established norms uh it can be difficult to break them and in terms of of how you um, how you establish those norms in the first place versus how you maintain those norms, those can be um, you know there can be complexities there as well. Uh, so for a currency, in order to establish a currency, it needs to um, the market needs to be finding uh, some unit that it can use as its standard of value. And if the government provides that, then that's convenient uh, and people can settle on, on the unit that the government provides. And the government, of course, and the government institutions are in a unique position to ensure that the currency is usable as currency, to ensure that its purchasing power remains stable. But if the government fails to maintain the currency properly, if they fail to maintain the norm properly, uh, then they can lose that. Uh, and, and no amount of saying, oh, we're going to collect taxes in this currency is going to make a difference. Now, the government institutions can make a difference, uh, but they have to do it right. And they're subject to the constraints of the market, uh, just like the Chinese government was subject to the norms that were already in place. You can't just you can't just change a norm. And, and that's and that's also an important point to bring up when it comes to currency, because you can't just switch to a new and different currency either. Um, you know, the government has to really, really mess it up in order for people to switch to something else. Just quickly on that point, see what, what you can take the analogy further and say what happens in Zimbabwe when you have high, or, or Venezuela where you have hyperinflation is the government saying let's all switch to red lights, right? So that's when that's when the when it breaks when this system breaks down. But you know, ninety nine percent of the time in ninety nine percent of the places, people go with what the government uh, suggests, and so you, you you know that 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 the, the people will when people ignore the government that means and in both those cases, China's in, like China, Zimbabwe, you've got extraordinary political circumstances beyond just the management of money you've got political a broad political crisis or the management of traffic right you've got a broader political crisis which under which or extraordinary political activity which makes the normal functioning of government including managing the money supply or traffic lights break down yeah, so I just uh, you know want to mention that it's not just that the government is suggesting that you use a certain token as currency. The government is choosing to provide a token as currency and choosing to maintain a stable currency. They're providing something that the market will want to use. So it's a lot more than the government just suggesting, hey, you're going to use the dollar now as your currency and then people go do it. They have to um, do the right things with their institutions to provide something that's usable by the market as a currency. Uh, and I think that's something that that is often 
uh, not emphasized uh, enough, especially with, with MMT people who say that all you have to do is declare it as, um, as a tax credit, as, you know, you're going to pay the taxes in this currency and therefore, um, or in this unit, and therefore everyone's going to adopt it as currency or accept it as currency. And I, it's just not, it's not enough. That could be one of the ingredients, but there, there's a lot more to it. And, and fundamentally, the most important thing is the price stability. MMT is the like seems to me like the least sophisticated version of the endogenous money theory. It's the most sort of you know um, it it makes it really simple. It does it doesn't speak much about the role of private debt. It does it really it sort of has you know this this one solution one size fits or not one size fits all but this one answer is to um, you know the the Mosley example of the you know you need to pay me with business cards or I'll shoot you. Um, therefore, my business cards are now money, right. and I think it's 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 worthwhile, and it provides an interesting starting point. But th this is where Crocker and 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 you and Steve Keen, I think, take those ideas and develop them in more sophisticated ways. Well, uh, to quickly speak to endogenous money, just so people know what we're talking about, um, a lot of people say that the amount of money in the economy determines the price level. Um, and this is kind of the exogenous money perspective, and that might be the one you're more familiar with. The endogenous money perspective is that the price level determines the amount of money in the economy. Uh, you know, if prices are higher, then people need more money to spend so they can buy stuff. So those are kind of like the two competing uh, perspectives. Uh, and I like to say that it's not the amount of money in the economy that matters at all. So it, it's neither the typical endogenous money perspective that you would see with MMT or the typical exogenous money perspective that you'd see with uh, quantity theory of money uh, monetarists, you know, perspective types either. Um, so so just to, to get a sense of what that is, I tend to talk about um, the flow of money in the economy needing to be balanced against the flow of, of uh, production. So if we're producing a certain amount of stuff, we need a certain amount of money to buy that stuff. And those, you know, people are spending money and that goes in one direction and then businesses are producing goods and services uh, that goes in the other direction. And these things need to be balanced against each other to keep prices stable. Same amount of money chasing the same amount of stuff, essentially. Uh, anyway, uh, we've, we've gotten a little bit further away from, from sovereign money. So, so let's go to Derek and, and see what he has to say. That was a really good discussion though. I like comparing those different theories. And I do like to think about sovereign money as far as I understand it, kind of in the context as, an, as a sort of a friendlier alternative to MMT maybe. It, it, I think a lot of these do come down to questions of emphasis. What are we emphasizing with this particular viewpoint and theory? I think governments play an important role in society and in, in, in economies, I mean, certainly in our systems. And, but then of course, when the title of the theory is sovereign money and we're, and we're sort of, we're, we're trying to say that um, we're emphasizing the, the political sovereignty of the currency issuer. Like um, I do like to more think about money itself and what are the monetary constraints that are that are the government is struggling with and contending with right um because the way i'm looking the way i'm looking at this from a practical perspective is sort of what are we missing what what have we not understood about money and as far as sovereign money is concerned or, or the political authority making very strong political decisions with currency that's something we've had for a very long time and governments have always sort of been doing this and and playing an active role in the monetary systems but i don't th i don't think i think some of us many of us here agree that they, they've been missing something important. And the important things that I think they've been missing are these monetary features, things like a basic income, things like what's really going on with inflation, right? And, and it, the government's sort of been worrying along doing its thing and it hasn't it's been missing these things, which are, which are sort of what I would call monetary phenomenon. So, you know, it, it's, it's just a question of what you want to emphasize. And I, I do like the Crocker view. I, I, think it, I think it incorporates enough of this 
private sector money view compared to something like MMT. But you know, um, the really what's what's missing, right, is the basic income. That's what we that's what we don't have. Yeah, um, I like what you said about um, about it coming down to emphasis. Different people are emphasizing different things. Uh, so when when I say, okay, the government can deficit spend and and borrow in order to spend, uh, I'm emphasizing something different than when Jeff Crocker says, okay, the government can issue new money into the economy uh, debt free, and there's just no debt. We don't record any debt, you know, that kind of thing. So a question we can ask is, are these two things really any different from each other? So uh, in the sovereign money example, the government spends the money without issuing any uh, you know, treasury securities, any government bonds, that kind of thing. So, so that, that mechanical step, so that, that part is different for sure. Uh, but at the end of the day, the amount of debt and the amount of interest that the government pays into the private sector um, really has nothing to do with how much money they've borrowed in the past or anything like that. It has to do with uh, what they need for monetary conditions in the financial sector to modulate the amount of lending and borrowing in the private sector. Uh, so if the government issues kind of so-called so debt-free um, sovereign money, uh, then it's still going to be the case that the central bank will have to um, adjust the the amount of, of of assets that it pays interest on or the level of interest that it pays on those assets, that kind of thing. Um, and it strikes me that, that fundamentally you end up in the same situation and the government has to keep paying the same amount of interest either way. Um, even if you didn't issue, happen to mechanically issue the debt at the exact moment of the spending, you still end up having to, to, to pay the same, the same interest in, for monetary policy purposes. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, that does make sense to me because I think what, what, what you're getting at is that the government is managing this higher promise of money and they have a responsibility to do that. And all the other actions that are occurring on the economy, I mean, this mechanical thing about the bonds is very similar to weird stuff going on in the private sector suddenly. Well, the monetary authorities are going to have to adjust to that somewhere. And it's all about managing that 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 higher promise. And I think, um, yeah, I mean, that, that gets into this question of like, um, is there, a, what is the difference between debt and, and, a, and a promise, right? And, and Jeffrey Crocker does seem to be, um, he seems to think it's very important, right, that we nominally separate these things and, and, and make sure that, look, it's just the government's creating the money now and we're not calling it debt anymore. And I'm sort of sympathetic to that because I think conceptually it feels simpler. Um, but then at the same time, right, like um, the government is sort of bound by this promise too. It, and I'm, I, I feel that, um, you know, it, it, it's unavoidable when we look at how money is created and used in the economy, it's an unavoidable conclusion, which is the unavoidable conclusion is that money itself is a form of debt, right? And I don't, so, you know, I'm not sure if it's, even if it's the case that um, creating money and paying out a basic income helps relieve people of debt burdens and to feel um, less indebted, right? And maybe money will start to feel more like a promise and less like debt. Um, I also think that it's important to, to emphasize the debt-like nature of money because when people are saying things like, oh, the public sector debt is getting too large, right? Um, uh, in a way, if you're saying, oh, well, I agree, right? We should shrink the private sector debt and increase the money spending. You, you might be um, give, creating a false impression. You might be convincing people that actually, yeah, it is, there is a problem that government balance sheets are expanding when actually that is sort of normal and not, not, a, not a problem with money. Yeah, I think that's right. It, it can start to get pretty complicated when you declare 
you know, the base money as not being a form of debt. Because if you look at its role in the economy and what it does, well, it's an asset that's issued by the government that people can trade with each other. Um, it's denominated in the currency unit. You know, the same thing is true of a treasury bill, right? Uh, a treasury bill obviously has some other interesting properties. You know, it, it pays a certain amount of interest or it has a certain yield on it. it has, you know, it has a price that can move around due to market forces, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but it's also true that the, you know, the United States government uh, started paying interest on the base money itself. So you're paying interest on um, on sovereign money. So now you're paying interest on an instrument that you know Jeff Crocker might not want to call uh, a form of debt. Uh, but fundamentally, these things kind of serve similar roles in the economy, and you're adjusting parameters like how much interest you're paying on these things uh, in order to in order to adjust monetary policy. And if we if we think of it all as just different kinds of government debt, then it gets a lot simpler to describe what monetary policy is and what monetary policy does. What it is is it's it's replacing one form of government debt in the economy in the market with another form of government debt. So you're replacing treasury bills with reserves or reserves with treasury bills, you know, back and forth, that kind of thing. So it's about swapping different kinds of debt to, to get interest rates at the right level, to, to, to uh, manipulate incentives in the financial sector. Um, if, you're, if you're defining the sovereign money as not being a form of debt, uh, then you have to kind of, um, then, it's, then it's more difficult to describe what monetary policy is really doing. Um, go ahead, Austin. Yeah, look, I, I'm not sure I followed what the bit you were saying just before Derek was speaking, so I'd like you to go over that again. But just before you do, it seems to me that the whole point of what Croc is trying to do is to allow um, activity in the real economy that isn't as connected to the financial sector, right? That the, um, the point is, and this is where, you know, I think you sort of often say that government debt doesn't matter. And I, I almost agree, except that the government is paying interest on that to someone. And when they pay that interest to that person, it become, it, you know, the interest that goes to that person is then real spending power in the real economy potentially. Right. So, um, and it's, it's, and I, I didn't, I don't think, I don't understand how there would be interest paid and to whom on the, on the sovereign money that Craig Crocker is talking about issuing. And I think that's, that's kind of the trick of the whole thing to put it's almost the money that you put in to pay off the interest because everyone else's all the other money is creating uh, is is generating a need for interest payments somewhere in the economy um and so this money is there to sort of well this is this is now i'm fusing steve Keen and jeff crocker a little bit whether whether you need something to to pay off that interest with um from the, if you if you you know simplify it all to one big macro picture you, there's there's got to be some money that which just pays off that debt and pays down that interest pays off the pays the interest and down the debt um, and that also allows the real economy to function without just constantly the bank is skimming you know without the bank is skimming at, at every at every on every transaction so to speak yeah uh, so I guess the ma the main question is here is if I'm saying the same amount of interest has to be paid what's the deal with interest being paid on the sovereign money so uh, I wouldn't say that the interest is necessarily being paid on the sovereign money per se, 
Um, but in order to maintain your monetary policy stance, you have to pay a certain amount of interest into the private sector uh, at a certain rate. Uh, and that interest is going to be the same whether you happened to issue sovereign money completely on its own or whether you happened to issue uh, you know, your sovereign money and a treasury bill at the same time, if those, if, th if those two things happen to be connected to each other. The fact that you're not issuing a treasury bill in connection with the issuing of the sovereign money does not take away the fact that you still need to pay the interest in the economy uh, to keep monetary policy where you want it to be. Uh, so more concretely, we can say that if there's too much lending in the private financial sector, the government can start paying more interest uh, on its borrowing, quote unquote borrowing, uh, in order to pull investment away from the private financial sector. So you're not gonna lend to the private sector if you can get a better interest rate lending to the government. And this is kind of like the key mechanism of monetary policy is that it pulls investment away from the private sector by, by enticing uh, private investors with uh, higher interest rates. Uh, so you still need to do that uh, even in a sovereign money world if you want to keep the price level stable. So that's kind of kind of the answer to that question. So you're not really paying uh, interest on the sovereign money per se, but as a result of having issued the sovereign money, um, you know that's going to have to change your monetary policy stance in order to keep prices stable. And it's going to end up being the same stance as it would be if you had issued the treasury bills in conjunction with the with the uh, with the money issuance, because uh, if you issue treasury bills, then the Fed might say might need to take away some of them uh, from the market in order to get to the ultimate monetary policy stance. If you don't issue the treasury bills, then the Fed might have to add something, uh, but you end up getting to the same spot either way. Wouldn't it be that it allows you to do stuff with monetary policy that you couldn't otherwise do, right? If you give everyone money, that has some inflationary effect, so you can raise interest rates. Like, just I'm just thinking from the, from where we are now, where where we can't really raise interest rates without. So, well, even before the the pandemic, we couldn't raise interest rates without risking recession, right? Um, and the idea is, if you give people money, then you can raise interest rates. I thought to me that sort of seems to gel with the whole CMT idea of using basic income as a monetary. Um, uh, lever that you put money in the economy outside the financial sector and that changes how you can treat the financial sector. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly right. If you give people money, you can raise interest rates. Um, what I'm saying is that uh, it doesn't let you do something that uh, we could give people money through normal deficit spending where you're issuing treasury bills, right? And the treasury bills uh, go onto the market and they, you know, when you issue it, when you're a government, you issue a treasury bill uh, that sucks reserves out of the system. And at the same time, it lowers the price of treasury bills because you're flooding the market with more treasury bills. So that increases the yield on treasury bills. So that's how we raise interest rates. If you are um, not issuing the treasury bills, uh, then you're going to have to find some other way to issue to, to raise interest rates. So the Fed or the central bank of whatever country you're in has to find a way to issue some other kind of debt onto the market in order to push interest rates up. Uh, so you get the same you get the same result either way. Um, it's not that sovereign money per se, it's not that sovereign money, sovereign debt-free money per se is what allows us um, to raise interest rates. It's the giving of the money to the people that allows us to raise interest rates. Whether you call it debt-free money or whether you call it deficit spending, uh, you get the same effect either way. Uh, let's go to Eddie. So I actually think that um, the concern and, and, and the, the, the thinking about money and debt um, is not is not quite a dead end, but it's it's almost a, a bit of a cul-de-sac. I think that it's actually um, it's actually not the most important uh, thing that's going on, and it's actually not where you find 
um, the explanatory power, the explanation for for all the things that are going on. Um, and so I, I think uh, a lot of um, you know MMT, a lot of economists, um, you, you know. Go kind of go about in, in circles around it, and I think there's something else that everybody's missing. So there's, um, so uh, you know, my thinking on this, you know, started with with Ray Dalio, and and Ray Dalio, you know, he he was in one of our our meetings very when I, very early on, um, and um, you know, he has this idea about the the big uh, the big debt cycle. Um, and where you know, with on the rising side of that cycle, people borrow more and more, and then at some point it becomes unsustainable, and then and then you end up with a with a crash because the income that results from the investment is not enough to sustain the debt uh, within the entire economy. That's his that's his idea. It's a little bit similar to Minsky, um, but when we went over it, um, there's a part of it that 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 he answers the question: Well, why do people always? why does the debt always grow? Why do people always have to borrow more and more? And he, he's kind of like, oh, this is human nature. You know, they just, you know, once they borrow, <laughs> they like it and then they're going to borrow more. And, and it's actually not um, particularly, it's, I don't think it's actually a very strong explanation. Um, but his, you know, looking at his stuff um, got me thinking about and looking, in, and looking into and noticing some things. So one of the things that he points out is that if you go from the 1940s Great Depression um, to about 1970 to about the current era, you know, 2020, and you look at the interest rates, um, the interest rates, um, you know, are very low prior to the Great Depression, and during the Great Depression, they 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 hit zero, um, and then after the Great Depression, you know, lifts, and then um, you know things are things are are good for a while, and 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 incomes are rising, uh, and the interest rates, you know they start to trend upwards and they go up and up and up. Um, people of the, think of the 70s as an episode, but if you look at it, it's really part of a trend. From the 40s to the 70s, the interest rates are, are going up, you know, the whole way. And then you get to the 70s, uh, Volcker, inflation, and then after that, uh, you know, we beat inflation, supposedly, and, and, and the interest rates come all the way back down um, slowly from the 1970s to, the, to 2020, uh, you know, very you know, just smooth trend from the, you know, about 20% to, to we're back to, to zero here. Um, so that's, that's one cycle. Then another thing, um, you know, also you can find the Dalio is wealth inequality. Um, you know, it has the same cycle. You have high inequality in the forties, uh, you know, around the great depression, prior to the great depression. And then it, it goes down after the great depression. Uh, it reaches, you know, a, the, you know, most equal, you know, around the 70s, and then wealth inequality rises again uh, from the 70s to the 20s. If you look at wages, um, you, you get the same cycle, um, you know, in terms of you have rising wages from the 40s, 1940s, um, to the 70s, you know, what, wages rise very strongly, and you get to the 70s, and then wages just stagnate. And from the 1970s to the current era, um, you know, they have been stagnant. They, you know, they they have not grown for, for 40 or 50 years. So how do you explain this? Um, so in the article, there's a, there's a quote that says, you know, productivity growth in excess of real wage growth and the gap uh, between... Uh, Spending and wages. Yeah, the gap, he talks about the gap between uh, productivity growth and real wage growth. And he says, if, you know, 
productivity growth is higher than the real wage growth, then that is bad for for the poor. And that that's very very close to to, to where we're going. So. You know, if you divide the, the, the economy up and you think of two, the two parts of it, one is represented by most people who are not capitalists, who are not, you know, super wealthy people. And most people, um, you know, earn income primarily through working and then they spend it. Um, and then you have the wealthy people who, who primarily, who they, you know, they save almost all of their income. So al almost all of their income goes into investment. It goes into capital accumulation. They they you know uh, invest in more more capital for themselves but also for society okay yeah so you've made a few points that i think i want to i want to get to before you go any further so as far as as far as the cycle stuff goes you can't you can't really predict this stuff this is not like you know a science where you can say oh you know the cycle is going to take a certain amount of time we can predict when it'll start when it'll end that kind of thing these things are all subject to all kinds of variables all kinds of risks including political risks you don't know uh, what policies, what economic policies governments are going to institute, that kind of thing. So I think Ray Dalio, in that respect, is a little bit woo-woo out there, kind of astrology um, <laughs> type thing. But he's certainly right about kind of the mechanisms of, you know, debt accumulation. Um, private sector debt grows and grows and grows and becomes more brittle over time. He's certainly right about that. So I wanted to, to mention that. I don't know if you, you have a response to that. So, I, so I'd argue that if you understand it, so I'd argue that the reason people can't predict what's going on is because they don't understand the full mechanism. And that if you do understand the full mechanism and you understand what's going on and how the different causations uh, influence each other, that you can predict what is going to happen. Uh, well, we don't need to have a whole conversation about that. I think for now we can agree to disagree on this particular point. But I think I think something that's important to emphasize is that if you fund consumers directly through a basic income, then you can shrink down the private financial sector so you don't have to have these kinds of cycles anymore. I think we both agree on that. Yes? Right. So, um, you know, to kind of go into the explanation. So I, I just talked about the, the facts. I mean, if you just look at these things, you know, over the 40s, from the 40s to the 70s to, to now. You can look at history. You can look at these facts. You can come up with all kinds of theories and models and explanations, regardless of what that is. It's not going to be the case, like depending on economic policy, depending on all kinds of different things. You know, you could have recessions at different times. They're not regularly spaced. Even the long-term cycle is, the, the long-term debt cycle, as Ray Dalio calls it, is not. If you, if you look at the, if you look the four, the four variables that I t just talked about, if you look at them from the 40s to the 70s to now, it's extremely smooth. I mean, there's, there's a, I mean, there's a, there's noise. There's noise. So the recessions, so not talking about the recessions, but just the, the overall, uh, you know, if you were to take a, a, a filter to it and look at the, the, the trend, you know, all of those four variables, very smooth. So, so for, for now, what I want to do is, is drop the discussion about like the regularity and predictability of these cycles and focus on the discussion about how we can reduce the amount of private sector debt creation if we have more government money funding consumers directly. Whether you want to call that government replacing private sector debt with government debt or replacing it with sovereign money, it's the same effect either way. So I'd say that to understand that correctly, you have to have a correct understanding of what's going on. So that's what I want to talk about. 
Eddie, I've read the same. I've read the same Ray Dalio stuff that you've read, so we can just agree to disagree on on this point right now. Yeah, I'm. I'm talk. I'm not talking about. I'm not talking about something that Ray Dalio. So what I'm talking about is the step beyond that. Ray Dalio does not um, actually have this thinking. Ray Dalio uh, okay. does not talk about productivity growth. He does talk about. He get. He's almost there, just like uh, Jeff Crocker's almost there. So Dalio is almost there because he he talks about the split between the poor and the rich. So I want to talk about. Let's talk about the um, the gap between uh, between consumer spending and economic, or sorry, between consumer spending and wages, or between uh, wages and GDP. Uh, so so this is something. So this is something that Crocker notices, and he says, well, what we need to do is we need to use basic income to close that gap. What he doesn't see necessarily is that much of the wages are also funded by private debt. So you can close the gap between wages and output without actually solving the problem, hypothetically, because you're funding jobs uh, through private debt as well. So I think it's, it's useful to emphasize that basic income isn't just a substitute for consumer debt. Um, in terms of all the data that Jeff Crocker looks at, he's, he's comparing consumer debt to economic output and to wages, but it's more than just that, it's all private debt. And I think that's more of the kind of stuff that Steve Keen gets into. Uh, go ahead, Eddie. So the, so the really relevant uh, gap uh, is actually the gap between spending and production. And, and, and when I say the gap between spending and production, um, you know, this is one of the places where it gets confusing because, uh, you know, everybody knows that spending and production are, are equal. Um, you know, you can only produce what people are spending to buy. Um, you can't, nobody produces stuff that, that people are not going to buy. Um, so spending is equal to production, but the gap, I guess, is, should better, better be labeled as the gap between spending and productive capacity. So, and, and CMT talks about this too. And, and that's the, the whole idea of the, uh, the balance between these two. This is also the balance between uh, consumption and, and capital because a big factor, there's two factors in your production. One is capital, one is labor. And labor is relatively fixed, but capital is constantly, constantly growing. And part of that is a constant um, um, increase in, in productivity. So, you know, it, the, the more factories you build and the fancier factories you build and the more technology that you invest in, um, the higher production goes, the higher capital goes, the higher production goes. Okay. Uh, so, yes. So, so let me just kind of sum up. I mean, like you're, you're getting into stuff and other people might not, might, might not necessarily be following you. Um, okay. So when Eddie's talking, at first he said the gap between spending and production, but the gap between spending and productive capacity. So the idea is that the economy is not going to produce what people don't have the money to buy. Uh, if people don't have the money to spend, then the economy is not going to be producing it, even if it could be producing it if they did have the money to spend. So that's kind of the gap that he's getting at there. Uh, and then, so then there's the question of, um, do people, the amount of money that people have to spend and the distribution of it and whether it's enough to kind of activate the full potential of the economy. So that's what Eddie's getting at. And then there's also the question of where is that money coming from? Is it being funded by consumer debt, by other private debt, corporate de debt, or is it being funded by uh, government debt? Or if you're averse to that term, you could say, you know, sovereign money, uh, more sovereign money creation. Um, so, so there's kind of these two, these two, these two variables. One is is the money being distributed properly, and then the other one is how much of it is backed by unstable uh, private debt versus stable uh, public debt. Uh, go ahead, Eddie. 
So, I, so I'd, lock, I, I'd like to talk about that gap a little bit more. And there is a, a way to, um, to, to measure that gap. Um, you know, and the, you know, economists have a measure called capacity utilization. Um, they go to you know, companies and, and factories, um, you know, including manufacturing you know, companies, and they, they, they ask a question. They say, um, you know, if you could sell everything you could make, you know, if you, if you just, you know, we're going to buy everything you make, what is the maximum amount that you can produce? How much capacity can, do you have? You know, how many widgets could you produce this month if we promise to buy them all? Uh, okay, so I think, I think you and I disagree about the effectiveness of this measure, but theoretically, the idea is that there's a certain amount uh, companies could be producing, and they're producing below that amount. And so let's stick to that concept without trying to, like, justify the particular methodologies of how they measure it or something like that. That's fine. I'm, and that's exactly the question. It's, it's you know, you could produce 1,000 widgets, that's your productive capacity, but um, you're only producing 300 because that's how many you can sell. That's how yes. many you can sell. So that, that's, so there's your spending. So if you look at capacity utilization from the 40s to the 70s to the 20s, again, it's that same cycle. It's low uh, going into the Great Depression 1940s. It's about um, high 60s, I think. And it starts dropping like a rock as you go into the Great Depression. Uh, it's doing the same thing right now. It was, you know, high 60s before we got into the coronavirus crisis. And, and now it's, it's, it's also dropping like a rock. After you come out of the Great Depression in the 40s, it starts rising. The highest it goes is 90% in the, in the 70s, and then it comes down again. For the conversation we're having now, we don't need a history of the cycles of when we had higher capacity utilization, when we had higher employment, that kind of thing. All we need to talk about really is what the economy looks like right now. Could we be producing more? Um, you know, it, what, what do we think about uh, the level of employment? Does it matter? You know, uh, what's, uh, what's, what are people spending levels now? How much of that is funded by private debt? Like, we really don't need to get into the cycle stuff and this his, historical, you know, levels well, of things. Well, here's the thing. The thing is that what we could absolutely be producing more. We completely agree on that. We yes. definitely could be producing more. But if you talk to you know someone who's like a you know a, a, a fiscal conservative and they and they say, oh, you know, you're gonna get inflation, whatever, whatever, they they're not going to take you on on your word about that. They don't need to take me on my word. So so Eddie, I'm giving you an opportunity to make your point using fewer words. Right? You don't need to talk about the history. Right. Well, so my point is this: if you if you think about it, because this is this is how you is how you understand it. You have to look at the facts, and if you look at the facts and think about what does that mean. So consumption and production those are locked together. Those are locked together. Those have to be the same. But what happens if you don't have enough aggregate demand? And we are arguing that you know we don't have enough aggregate demand. And, and Keynesians, um, in a, you know, even MMTers, many people argue that we don't have enough aggregate demand. Uh, but you know, to understand it further, you should, you should realize that the way that the, the lack of aggregate demand shows up is, by, is with capacity utilization going down. So, so hold on a second. I'm going to interrupt you again because we are not, I am definitely not arguing that we don't have enough aggregate demand. I'm arguing that consumers don't have enough access to what the economy can produce for them. It's not, it's not about, um, 
it's not about getting people to to buy more in order to kind of activate the economy or something like that. It's about in terms of what the economy is doing, how do we ensure that people have access, even even if even if the economy is underproducing or whatever, how do we ensure that they have access to whatever they would want to get out of the economy? So it's not the goal is not to boost aggregate demand. Well, we're we're saying the same thing with with different words. So there's so we're okay. saying the same thing with different words. That's exactly what I'm saying. Um, is that we don't because consumers don't have money, then they cannot. The factory can produce a thousand widgets, widgets in generalizing widgets over the entire economy, everything the economy can produce. The factories can produce a thousand widgets, but the consumers cannot buy a thousand widgets because they don't have money. And that's right. And and all I'm saying is that the goal isn't to get the factory to produce all 1,000 widgets. The goal is to get consumers in a position where they can buy enough widgets for whatever their purposes are, even if it's less than 1,000. Actually, this is really central. This is what I'm saying is that people get it, in, into this cul-de-sac and get locked up, you know, thinking about money and worrying about money and debt. But what is the point of having factories that can produce 1,000 widgets if you, if you can only buy 300? That is irrational. That, that, that makes no sense. And so there's no point in buying that factory in building that factory to produce three times what you can actually buy. Um, yet that factory actually gets built. Yet we actually get to that place where the productive capacity grows and grows and grows, but the consumer's access to that capacity does not keep up. That's the point. That's right. So oftentimes if we have capacity going unused, it doesn't look like necessarily physical factories that aren't operating it looks like the factories that never got built because there wasn't enough that people didn't weren't wanting to buy the products that would be produced by those factories i would say both of those there's you know the factories that are that are on the ground are not working uh, as they could and um in addition very key here there's all these factories that could have bought, gotten built but they didn't get built um, and how do we know that they didn't get built? We can see that in the economy because building the, that factory is a demand on investment capital. It's a demand of capital. And so in the financial markets, uh, what ends up is that the, the, the lack of consumption demand translates into a lack of real investment demand, which means that you end up with all this capital with nowhere to go and the price of that capital the market price of that capital is the rate of the rate of return it's also the discount rate and it's also the interest rate yeah to sum up what you just said uh, not only is the economy not going to produce what people don't have the money to buy it's not going to build the capacity that people don't have the money to activate that's the point that you're getting at exactly exactly and but then again the question becomes how did we get here why in the world are we getting into a place in the economy where we're building, we're building all these factories? We have even more to build, even more money. We could build even more frack factories if we wanted, but people don't have the money to 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 buy that, and that that goes against you know um, classical economics. Um, you know, it's a problem that is not solved by monetary policy. The idea, the the, the problem is that that traditional monetary policy sends the money um, through debt markets, you know, into back into the, the capital side of the equation. But you don't need... So Eddie, are you getting to kind of like the end of your point? Uh, you know, hey, I mean, we're, we're here every week, we, we, but we, we, we got into some meat here. Um, so, but, but, so you end up with, you know, pushing money into the capital side, but what you really want is to push money 
into the consumption side. And yeah. so the, I guess to summarize um, the point that Alex, uh, you know, uh, wants me to say in few words, but I'm not sure it can be done, um, is that in the absence of a, a calibrated monetary, you know, UBI, um, there is no mechanism, um, well, there's not a very good mechanism to match the consumption and the capital. And so what you end up with is that these two, they wobble around until the consumption gets so low that you have, like in the Great Depression, you have, um, uh, you're on the cusp of revolution. You know, the, 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 you know, the socialism rises, people are saying, we're so poor, rich people are so rich, this is ridiculous, you know, we're gonna overthrow the government. And the government, you know, says, finally, look, this is ridiculous. You know, these people are so poor. We got to do something. So last time we got Social Security. And, and that's, that's what, you know, so that, that is what, you know, you, what turns it back around. And then there's another mechanism. There's a positive feedback loop uh, where when the consumers get more money, uh, they generate more demand. And part of generating that more extra demand is that you end up with more demand on labor, which raises wages which gives uh, consumers even more money to spend. So it becomes a virtual cycle, a positive feedback loop where it goes from the depression, the, the bottom, and it goes straight up until you hit the ceiling. Okay, so you, you've tried to make this point before in past discussions. Yeah, and I, and I think you know whether a basic income would raise the demand for labor, that's a point worth debating. And maybe we'll even have a whole one of these discussions on labor demand. That'd be wonderful. That would be wonderful. <laughs> Most of the time when people talk about basic income, they talk about labor supply. So people's willingness to work, that kind of thing. So labor demand is companies' willingness to hire people or in aggregate, how, how much companies in aggregate want to want to hire people for jobs. And if we, if we it, and that can be complicated because if we look at all the businesses that want to hire people today, um, you know, maybe a lot of them are funded by easy money, uh, low interest rate monetary policy. And a lot of these businesses maybe wouldn't exist in a world uh, with basic income. So, so that would cause a lowering of the, of the labor demand because you don't, we're not using private sector corporate borrowing in order to create jobs for people anymore. So that lowers the labor demand, but then also more people want to buy things. So there's, there's more stuff to actually produce in the economy. There's more actual investment to make because you have consumers with more money to spend. Uh, so that uh, can push the other direction and increase the labor demand. So the question is, is where do those things balance out? And I have an opinion and Eddie has an opinion and we'll do a whole one of these on that, on that subject at some point. That will be amazing because it's such a huge thing that uh, too many UBA advocates, um, you know, miss this. They, they, they lack um, this discussion. Um, so, so that would be great. And with that, I, I yield the floor. Go ahead. All right. And then the, the other thing that Eddie was getting at was that if you have a calibrated basic income, he called it a monetary UBI. I never use that term monetary UBI because I tend to think of uh, basic income as a fiscal policy, but you could certainly have it administered by the central bank and think of it as monetary policy too. It doesn't really fit into the category of monetary policy, which I was talking about before, which is you're swapping uh, different assets in the market. And if you think of monetary policy as just being the central bank swaps treasury bills for reserves and, 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 and different kinds of assets, then basic income doesn't fall under, under that umbrella. Uh, and it's more akin to uh, kind of the government spending that you would normally see or the kinds of trans government transfer programs that you'd normally see. So I put that in the fiscal category. Uh, that being said, you might want to keep it separate from your other fiscal policy and kind of have a separate institution that's, that's, that's calibrating it. 
it's monetary policy like and that it's it's money creation you know right now it's money creation is interest rates but it could be could be ubi that that's that's no different than any other fiscal spending though that's no different than any other fiscal spending i disagree about that but let's let's move on to, to, to other people <laughs> all right let's let's go to derek uh yeah to just take one one small piece of that and then maybe related back to the articles we read um you guys were talking about a, di a difference or alex brought up a difference between talking about insufficient demand consumer demand versus insufficient access i think it's really interesting because jeffrey crocker in his article despite i think a lot of things that we um agree with him on he does say very clearly at the end here something that surprised me which he, in his view he says that uh uh you know by by paying out this sovereign money as in the form of a basic income which is not attached to debt um, he says uh, uh, it would be necessary to ensure, you know, he's thinking about trying to activate more, more productivity, right, and make up for this decline in wages is how he's framing it. And he says it would be necessary to ensure that the basic income is spent and not saved so that it had the intended effect on demand in the economy. And I think that's fascinating, right, because he's, he's taking it very literally, more literally than you were, Eddie, and saying, that, oh, well, we, have, we have a lack of demand. And what I think is really interesting from the access point of view is that if you're actually just increasing the basic income, well, um, so what if the consumers decide to save some of it more? Really the point of the money is to allow, cons allow consumers to buy what they want. And we, uh, we could come up with all sorts of ways to sort of force people to spend money more if, we, if we're thinking, oh, the point of the economy is to produce stuff. But no, 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 the point is to produce stuff that consumers actually wanna buy. And so I, I just think that that's interesting that he, um, that he sort of falls into that a little bit there, that trap. Because you can imagine an economy with maybe maybe producing less of some of the stuff that we're producing today if people don't want to buy it, but more of other things that they actually do want. So I actually emailed Jeff Crocker uh, on this particular point, uh, and he said, um, he said, good point. Oh, wow. So basically, I said to him everything you just said, and he said, yeah, good point. Uh, that's true. We don't necessarily need to get people to spend their basic income. Uh, and you know, the point that I like to bring up is that if people aren't spending it, that just gives us more room to increase the basic income even further or spend on other things. Um, so, so yeah, he's kind of on board with that. Uh, I emailed him uh, with like six or seven different objections to his book, and he, he responded to all of them, and that was, that was one of them. All right, Eddie, do you want to go with your interjection now? So that was a really key point by Derek. Um, and that, that's another thing that economists worry about all the time. Like, oh, you know, if people get the money, they're going to save it instead of spend it. And we want them to spend it. We don't, you know, we don't want them to save it. How do we make them spend it? And that, I think that's hilarious. And, you know, I think the answer to that is, again, if you look at how it actually works, the people who save it are the wealthy. Um, they save almost all of their income because they have so much of it. And, and that's also because that's how they got there by saving and investing. Um, so if it goes to the wealthy, it gets saved. If it goes to the poor, it gets spent. And that's, that's how you do it. You don't have to worry about telling people, no, you're not allowed to save. <laughs> you must spend it. That's, you know, that's unnecessary. Okay. So I think we're all on the same page on that one. Uh, let's go to Austin. You've had your hand up forever. Yeah. Um, first of all, I also emailed Jeff Crocker with the same point. Um, we were having a little back and forth about um, after my deflation, my article about the deflationary effects of a basic income. Um, and he said something about, well, I guess, you know, all he said something about like all income is inflationary. And I said, well, no, all spending is inflationary. And he which is basically the same point in slightly different language about if you save it, it's not inflationary. Um, but I also I wanted to say uh, earlier on, I said that. Um, uh, you know, MMT is kind of the simplest version. Um, and one of the reasons I think that that's of, of this, you know, sort of 
you know, uh, sort of alternative monetary theories, right? One of the reasons I think that is, is because they don't really worry about this question of matching wages, productivity, and consumption, right? They just sort of assume that, like, they don't, they don't factor in rising productivity and the, the, lo the lowering demand for um, uh, labor in the economy, which is why they promote a jobs guarantee. Because, like, we'll just do what we've always done and get people money by having them work and it'll all just kind of work out, right? The problem is not enough economic activity, not enough. Um, and they assume that more spending will be inflationary if there's not labor going along, if it's not, if it's not accompanied by productive labor. Whereas, you know, Crocker, Keane, you, it sounds like Dalio as well. I'm not sure. Or maybe he, I, I don't really know his stuff. Or go, well, wait a minute. We've got to factor in this other moving um, this other variable, which is, you know, rising labor productivity. Um, I also wanted to say that we do produce a lot of stuff that no one uses. So there's like, there's two margins. There's the margin, what people consume and what's actually produced, um, you know, crops that get thrown away or, um, whatever. And, uh, you know, I remember when I was working in a bookshop, throwing out books on the millennium bug in on January 1st, 2000, right? So there's a lot of stuff to get, you know, boxes and boxes of them that no one ever bought. So there's a lot of stuff that gets produced and never gets used. So there's two, there's two gaps there. Um, there's what, what is, what, what we consume. Then above that, there's what's produced. Then above that, there's what could be produced. And I think it's probably, if we were talking about measuring, it's probably easier to measure that first margin and use that as a heuristic for the second um and there's lots there's lots of office space the but back to that point about which leads back to this point about labor productivity right um so we've the basic income attempts to um uh bridge this gap between um uh where productive capacity grows faster than than, than wages and with rather faster than wages sort of need to from a labor market point of view right but the other thing is so much consumption is driven by labor, right? And this is my, my thing with the deflationary effects of a basic income. Like most transport costs in the world are to do with commuting to work, right? There's a huge amount of like clothes that you wear to work and, and stuff like that. And so right now there was an article a couple of days ago, I saw somewhere saying, oh no, where there's the hidden office economy, which is collapsing, right? So it's the Starbucks underneath the building, the taxi from the train station, all of these things. And they're like, and the leases of the offices that now that everyone's doing remote working, this, this industry is collapsing, right? And they're saying, this is good for the companies that don't have to rent the office space. But what about the builders? What about the Starbucks baristas? What about all of these people who will miss out at what cost they said, right? So the saving they're they're expressing is a cost. Right. And it shows how fundamentally like our economy is this Jenga tower that has to keep getting taller, but can't. And that leads back to what I think Steve Keane is really good at expressing at the macro level, which is debt. Like, so we were talking before about why do people just keep borrowing more because it's human nature and Steve Keane's explanation. And I really want to hear, I really want to hear Alex's response to this because he was shaking his head when I brought it up before is that, well, no, it's a macroeconomic um, systemic fact that if, if not just if not, the, the amount of debt doesn't just have to be increasing, it has to be accelerating because it has to stay ahead. The more you borrow, the more debt there is in the economy, the more interest payments need to be made. So for, to, for the economy not to fall over, even more debt than that has to be created. Then even more than that, then even more than that. So you have this, this um, like, like an addiction, 
where the withdrawals get worse and worse and you need a higher and higher dose and it's never a good time to get clean, but you know, you can't just keep upping the dose or you'll have an overdose. Right. Um, and yeah. it sounds to me like that's kind of, so look, there's, there's the productivity and wages question is one, you know, variable. Then there's the, um, what's driving consumption variable, which is the other thing that when, when basic income comes in, it sort of solves one problem but it raises what is currently the way this another problem in a sense of lowering certain kinds of demand or another variable becomes active once you bring the basic income in, which is how much of this, how much of this consumption is actually work consumption is like, it's not factored in as business to business uh, services, but in effect it is, it's really Starbucks propping up, you know, the office building that's next door because people come get their coffee on their way to work. Right. And, um, or servicing that, that, that business. If the business didn't exist, even though it's consumer spending, if the business didn't exist, the, the, the services wouldn't be required, right? So there's this, all this economic activity that's happening that we actually, maybe we don't want, right? Like there's this assumption that all economic activity is good and it's sort of good for its own sake. And then there's the question of whether, you know, fiscal spending, um, uh, can, can solve this debt crisis and whether there's even a boundary between whether the boundary between fiscal and monetary uh, th spending is really the right way to think about it or is whether you have to think of them, them all together. So sorry if that's a little bit of a, 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 a crazy mind map, but there's just so much around this idea. Yeah. So uh, I agree with Steve Keen that it's not just kind of a psychological thing that people keep borrowing more. It's certainly the case that the borrowing needs to keep increasing to sustain the functioning of the economy. So in terms of, of what the Fed does is, is they say, or the central bank, they say, oh, there's not enough borrowing. We're going to stimulate the financial sector and create more borrowing to, to get to prop up consumer spending to where we want it, to prop up investment to where we want it, to kind of, to kind of keep everything going. So it's, it's certainly not just human nature or something like that. It's kind of a necessary consequence of the running of the economy. So I agree with Steve Keen on that. Now, if you have sovereign money creation or money that's backed by public debt, that can keep growing exponentially forever. The rate of growth of public debt can keep growing forever. Uh, and that does not create the same, the same kind of instability that the growth rate of, of private debt does or the growth of private debt does. So Steve Keen argues for you know, intermittent debt jubilees in which you forgive everyone. I think you can just solve this problem by substituting public debt for private debt or substituting sovereign money for private debt creation. Yeah, go ahead, Austin. Yeah, I mean, and this is bringing it back to the article on sovereign debt. Um, so I, we, I think I, there's a lot of agreement there between Keen, Crocker, you, uh, you know, and, and what Eddie's talking about, what I'm talking about. But the, um, the thing I guess that makes that I, that I think differently about and where I sort of side a little bit more with Steve Keen's moved a little bit away from the debt jubilees. He sort of accepted that a basic income is, he says it's more politically feasible and it'll kind of do an okay job. So let's do that. Um, but the, the, the difference I guess is the government debt is debt to somebody. So there's someone out there who, who owns that debt and who's getting an interest payment. And that's that. So if it gets big enough, those interest payments become a big part of the economy. And I think the difference the reason we mean you think differently about this is we think differently about inequality. Whereas I know you're, you know, um, I'm an, I'm an inequality hawk, you're an inequality dove or something, however you want to put it. And that, so giving more money to 
the wealthy people who will own this government debt has detrimental effects um, and could be an issue later on um, if, the, if government debt got big enough, which makes the sovereign money approach of like, it's, there's nothing attached to this. There's no one owns it except that, you know, the person who's holding it owns it, right? It's not, it's not backed up by this, this uh, ongoing asset that some rich person owns. And I think that might be the difference between sovereign money and government debt that, that is significant to, from, a, from a, I guess, a more traditional left-wing point of view where you just don't yeah. want inequality. Well, um, I think that's probably the difference that Jeff Crocker is getting at. But unfortunately, I think that difference does not exist. Kind of as I was getting at before is you have to be paying the rich people their money. And the reason you're doing it, or the interest, and the reason you're doing it is you're paying them not to lend into the private financial sector. And the, the fact that the debt creation or the government debt creation is attached to the spending or not doesn't change the fact that there needs to be the same amount of government debt, same amount of interest payments uh, in the economy. So you get the same thing, even if you do it through sovereign money and you pretend that the sovereign money is debt free. I'm, I'm still not getting that. It's like an Escher drawing in my head. It's just not clicking for me. So I'll just have to right. meditate on that for a while. So a lot, of, a lot of times the people who are worried about government debt are worried about the servicing payments that you have to pay on it. And maybe some people are worried, oh, no, the government has to keep paying more and more money and the government's in trouble. You're worried that, oh, no, the government's paying more and more money. And now that's going to rich people and the rich people are getting richer. Somebody's getting it. Yeah. Right. Exactly. But the somebody's getting it side, you have to ask, why is somebody getting it? So if the government just deficit spends and the central bank, buy, they could, if they wanted to, just buy up all of that government debt. And then the only person getting it is the central bank. The reason they're choosing not to buy it all up is because they need to leave some of it on the market for monetary policy purposes. They need to have uh, higher interest rates to pay rich people not to lend in the private financial sector. So if you do sovereign money, it's the same thing. The central bank still has to figure out a way to pay that interest to those rich people in order to keep the financial sector stable, in order to keep the price level stable. Yeah, so I might just, I'll, I'll, I'll yield the floor after this, but my immediate instinct is like, well, if you want to stop, stop them doing that, then you use a tax, some kind of tax mechanism. So you tax the money away from them before they can lend it or you, you know, um, and that's where, I, you know, I see sort of tax as a really useful tool in shaping the economy. Um, yeah. And I, I, I'm not sure how far apart we are on that. Well, um, I think it's tricky. MMT likes to focus on kind of the private sector as a whole. And then there are these mechanisms, government spending and taxation, that kind of add a flow of money into the economy and, and, and remove money from the economy through a flow. And all of that is true and all of that is right. But really importantly is also what happens within the private financial sector. The money that's created entirely within the private financial sector, where if you looked at it as a, sec as a, a sector as a whole, it would all net out or something like that. But these things are really important for the actual economic activity that's going on in there. So the private financial sector is all within the private sector, right? All of that activity is not being captured by taxes or, or government spending. So I tend to focus on, well, if we want to reduce the amount of, of financial sector activity that's happening within the private sector, you need to adjust the interest rates. If you have a tax, if you institute a tax, that does drain some money out of the private sector, but it also changes incentives in the private sector. So depending on the tax, if you're ta taxing a rich person, that could actually get them to spend more money because they want to avoid the, paying the tax or they want to use the money that they have while they have it, that kind of thing. So you need to be very careful with taxes. It's not necessarily going to reduce spending. Yeah. Sorry, I said I'd yield the floor, but I'll say that's sometimes the point. Like you want them to invest, um, uh, invest their money rather than save it, um, which is very similar to invest it rather than lend it. 
right? Um, um, is, is one of the re- not not that you always want to do this, but you might, right? Is 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 one of the reasons you might use taxes. So, uh, in in a sense, investing, saving, and lending are three ways of saying the same thing. So, if you're saving your money, you want to get a return on that savings, and you can get a return on that savings by uh, pushing it into the financial sector, into the private financial sector, and getting some interest back. Or you can get a return on that savings by lending to the government or buying treasury securities and then getting that interest back, right? So it's really when you're, when the government is issuing treasuries onto the market, what they're doing is they're, they're pulling some of that savings away from private sector investment. The problem is that we have too much uh, private sector investment, more than is actually profitable for us to build out in real productive capacity. So it ends up being financial investments rather than actual productive investments in the economy. So the idea is that if you increase interest rates, you increase the amount of government debt that's on the market, then that can pull away the excess. That can pull away the excess investment in the private financial sector. You're paying people not to lend excessively and create too much private credit. Well, I knew I said I'd stop, but I just want to say that's actually really convincing. Um, and as a real world example, uh, the company I'm working at, we have we get investment in the form of what's called a convertible note, which is like this hybrid of debt and investment. So it's right on the line where you owe money, but you have the option of repaying in shares. Right. Um, uh, based on a, a separate valuation of the shares, blah, blah, blah. But um, so, yeah, I see the, the similarity there. And that's that's quite a convincing argument. And while I'm on real world examples, I wanted to mention a real world example of sovereign money at the really micro scale that I experienced in Australia. We have socialized medicine. I went and saw a specialist the other day, paid nothing. Then I get a check in the mail, which is from the Reserve Bank, and it's got the doctor's name on it, but I have to, it is two signatures. There's me and the, and the, and the head of the Reserve Bank both have to sign the check and then give it to the, then I give it to the doctor, goes into his bank account, turns into normal spendable uh, balance inside his account. So this is, you know, literally just a piece of paper yeah. Uh, literally just a check from the Reserve Bank directly into the hands of a, of, a, of a real world human being rather than going through any financial intermediaries. So I just thought that was a really neat example of uh, sovereign money in action. Yeah, I would say that all government spending is an example of sovereign money in action. So the government spends base money into the economy. They spend the economy's ultimate money. Now, in terms of things that that aren't sovereign money... What's interesting about this is that it's from the Reserve Bank, that the check actually comes into my hands and has the governor of the Reserve Bank signature printed on it. You know what I mean? It doesn't go through, you know... Yeah. it's It's just a more obvious version. Doesn't matter if it's from the Reserve Bank or the Treasury. Yeah, yeah. I, I suppose I suppose it's a more obvious version. Um, what's interesting to us for this discussion isn't whether the the government issues base money or issues sovereign money. We all know that. What's interesting to us for this discussion is you know the question of is it really a form of debt and is it really different from the the CMT perspective? If we understand that monetary policy still has to do the same thing, do you really get anything by by saying this this money is is kind of debt free? government money and not creating a government debt security at the same time, not creating that T-bill or, or T-bond or something like that. And, and my hunch is that, no, you don't get anything above just saying it's, it's saying flat out that, hey, this is deficit spending and doing it the normal way. Well, let's go to Derek. Um, that sort of brings me back around to the point I raised my hand for a while ago, which is it's sort of what you feel matters to, and whether or not you think these categorizations matter might depend on sort of what you're defining the problem as, as that you're trying to solve. And we were talking, Austin was talking earlier about the differences between, you know, MMT, CMT, these different views. And I, I think the simplest way to understand them is 
Like what, what's the problem being addressed? And not Jeffrey Crocker, but the other sovereign money people. And I think to an extent, uh, Stephen Keene, you know, at some point ended up, they're defining the, the problem was private debt. And especially the other sovereign money article, which we read, which we haven't talked much about. They're really, really hard on that view, which is that like, oh no, it turns out banks create money and this sucks. This is a horrible problem and we have to do everything we can to, to stop this. Um, and when you're just, when you have that view of it, then um, yeah, okay, we, we, what's the alternative? We need something that's, that's, that's you know, this, this public money that's, that's not debt um, that replaces it. But, you know, I think what, what, what differentiates that from the Jeffrey Crocker view or the Alex Howlett view is that really it's getting narrowing and saying, well, really the problem is consumer poverty. Like that's what we're trying to solve. And then we're also, in order to address that, we're trying to solve stability of currency in the economy. And now you're, now you're filtering everything from by that mechanism. So, okay, maybe there's some private debt in the economy. Maybe that's serving useful roles. Maybe now there's a lot more public debt that we're using as the basic income instead. But it's like, well, the, the point of it is that we're, we're erasing poverty. And I think you see this, like the what is the problem question is really important, right? For MMT, obviously their, their conception of the problem is unemployment. So everything is designed to solve that problem, right? Or at least their, their primary policy positions are designed to solve that problem. Um, and if you you know, I would say, you know, to some extent, maybe this is subjective, but then to another extent, maybe there really are, one of these problems might be more fundamental to, to why things are bad in the economy. Why is the business cycle bad? Is it bad because we lose businesses? Is it always bad if we lose businesses, right? Or, or is it bad because it's sending lots of people into poverty, right? And now the economy can't function because people don't have money. Um, so I think, I think, you know, this gets more parsimonious when we, when we, you know, put our finger on, on the most serious problem. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, I like the way you put that. Um, another thing, I kind of want to shift gears a little bit, but another thing that Jeff Crocker emphasizes is automation and technological advancement. And he, he uses his data, he talks about consumer spending versus consumer debt and that kind of thing. Obviously, I think corporate debt is also important. All private debt is, is an important part of the picture. But he also emphasizes, and I don't know that this is right, that his model makes sense in a high technology economy uh, where you don't need people working as much. And this is what causes the gap between wages and overall spending, overall consumer spending. And certainly if you imagine that technology is advancing and we're not kind of creating jobs for people to, to make up the difference and we are you know, increasing consumer debt to make up the difference, then yes, that story would kind of kind of makes sense. But I think, I think what he's missing, or a big part of what he's missing, is that um, we're creating jobs as a way of paying people as well. So if you, if you assume the labor market is efficient and we're only hiring people if we need to hire them, uh, then the technology argument can make sense. And, and theoretically, it makes sense too, right? Like if, if, if you imagine an economy where all of the labor is being employed and the labor market is efficient, and then you introduce a technological advancement that, that, that makes us pr produce more, allows us to produce more uh, with less labor, um, then you need, to, you need to make a decision. You need to decide, okay, are we going to hire people even if it's not efficient to do so as a way of pushing money to them? Are we going to increase the amount of consumer debt to, to make up the spending? Or are we going to pay a basic income? So conceptually, it's right. But I also think 
that it applies even in a world where we don't have all this high technology. Like we've always had technological advancement throughout history, and there's never been a time when really an efficient labor market would uh, provide consumers with enough income to buy everything uh, the economy is capable of, of producing for them. Uh, so let's go to Bethany. You might have kind of addressed what I was saying, but when you brought up this question, I was wondering kind of where one would draw the line in terms of a high technology society, because you and I have talked about how maybe in a, in, a, in a really simple economy or a really small scale society, you know, you wouldn't necessarily need a basic income. I mean, at some point it, it is relevant to technology, but it doesn't necessarily mean automation as people think about it, you know, coming in the future as opposed to what we have now or, or something like that. So I guess I was just curious what he means by it and like where he would draw the line. Yeah, uh, and that's an interesting point about really small scale societies um, where you essentially have socialist incentives that uh, make sure all the work gets done in your in your small community or something like that. Uh, so if you have a technological advancement in that context, I mean you don't even have money in these economy in these economies, right? They're they're so small scale. Uh, so if you have a technological advancement, then that kind of more directly translates to more leisure. People just don't have to work as much. Whereas if you have a large scale monetary economy and people need the money to be able to access the economy's product, then you don't have that same mechanism anymore where technological advancement automatically translates into more leisure. You have to actually provide people the money so then they can take advantage of the product of the economy uh, and and not have, not have to, you know, like if there's, if the way they got their money was selling their labor, then you run into a problem. And this is why everyone's afraid of, of robots and stuff. Yeah, it's more like a, like um, technology helping with your chores at home, you know, in a small scale society in the sense that like you right. directly get it, there's not an intermediary. Um, That's system. exactly right. And in a large scale, you know, monetary market economy, um, you have to have basic income as that as that intermediary. So it's more it's more that it's it's about large scale versus small scale than it is about high technology versus low technology, because the right. way and technology, the use, yeah, the use of money and I guess and selling labor right as a factor in the economy, not just working right. for yourself or like yeah, exactly. Right. Okay. Let's go to Austin. I just wanted to, to jump back to what Derek said about defining the problem and specifically what Steve Keane defines the problem as, and that goes from, uh, which follows on from Hyman Minsky, which is absolutely the, the, the cyclical instability. So that's why there's a sort of post-Keynesian counter-cyclical thinking. They're worried about the boom and bust cycle. And as a tangent, one of the things they're worried about is the political instability. They're like, how did we get Hitler? through this, you know, we don't want, we don't want to have these big crises where, uh, you know, the, the people's, you know, the rug is pulled out from under everyone and then they reach for a demagogue, right? Like obviously relevant in the US context right now, um, the, uh, um, and, and worldwide, right? So I think that's what they're worried about, but I do think the, the, the CMT, you know, Howlettian uh, response, uh, to that is really interesting that, well, if we can, pr if we can protect people and everyone's okay and everyone's got, you know, some degree of financial security, then it's kind of great when, um, or at least okay when, you know, inefficient, unnecessary businesses shutter, right? Um, and that way we can have a more efficient economy, not you talk about more efficient labor market, but more efficient resource use generally by allowing businesses to, to be eliminated in this sort of Darwinian cyclical process um, driving us towards greater efficiency. Um, and I just wanted to touch on the large scale versus small scale and technologically advanced versus um, technologically simple. 
those two things are pretty related, right? Like large economies, you have, it makes sense to build a really high tech factory and, and have really advanced technologies. If you have a large society and you're going to be making, if you, if you need to make one enough bricks for one house, you can just dig a mud kiln. But if you're going to make enough bricks for 50,000 houses, then you build a factory with machines and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I think that's right. Uh, I think there's also a difference if you're a household, there's a difference between a household that has access to a washing machine and one that doesn't. So there's like a concrete technological advancement where you benefit from it directly at a small scale level. So let's go to Eddie. So Austin mentioned uh, the, you know, Steve Keen's uh, debt thing. And, um, you know, I think, again, I think that's a, a bit of a, um, you know, a wrong focus. Um, where you know if you if you frame the original problem the original problem is people are worried about the the crash they're worrying they're worrying about a crash um and so they they, they think that the debt uh cycle is a is a cause of this and i would argue that it's actually not the ultimate cause the ultimate cause again is the imbalance the excess of of, of capital and um you know, we have to distinguish here between real capital, building the factories, and financial capital, which is like rich people with you know money or bonds that can that can buy the factory. And so, when you um, you know do not when you can't build those factories because not enough not enough consumption, then the financial capital has nowhere to go. So it, it it's actually the debt increase the debt bubble and at the same time you also get a financial bubble um in, in stocks and whatnot uh, is caused by all this excess financial capital it has nowhere to go so what happens is you know i've got to find a return so i keep lowering the interest rates the supply is up the, the price keeps going down until finally somebody says yes. okay you know i'll borrow it i'll take the money uh for one percent half a percent whatever yes so the government debt is an outlet for the financial capital and also real investment is an outlet for the financial capital. So on both ends, if you have consumers with more money who are going to buy actual stuff that's going to be produced, uh, now you have, you, you can direct some of that financial capital towards real productive capital. And at the same time, if there's still any excess, you can direct that financial capital towards buying government debt. Uh, so that's why you, you, it's important to have a certain amount of government debt out there to kind of take some of that pressure off of the, off of the private financial sector. And another thing is that I would argue that before the 1800s, um, you know, there's very little productivity growth in the world. And so, you know, the, the big part of all, all of this dynamics is post 1800s, which is part of why, you know, if you go back to the 1800s, classical economists, you know, they would not have understood any of this because they didn't, they weren't, they didn't have any very much productivity growth to look at, look at in, in, in history. Yeah. yeah, I think that's right. And also everything happened slower. A lot of times, uh, you know, crises would happen if there was like a drought or something like that. You had a bad harvest in the season and then it would affect the banking sector or something like that. Um, right. But that's even, yeah. yeah. So, so you wouldn't have these kinds of um, just asset bubbles um, that, would, that would grow and grow. But there was, of course, always, there were people accumulating money. They just, you know, accumulated gold in vaults and, you know, there was some banking going on, but it was usually more um, shorter term, you know, funding businesses, you know, uh, you know, you're, you're borrowing money so that you can get your um, inventory and then sell your inventory and you use that to pay back the debt and stuff like that. Um, so a lot of this stuff is, is newer. Um, 
And, and even for, in terms of uh, stable purchasing power of money, um, stuff was happening so slowly that you could kind of use gold as your standard. And there were, there were monetary problems kind of throughout history, but everything's kind of more accelerated now. If you, if you go back to the earliest in history, the, one of the earliest, the South Sea bubble, uh, that occurs in the 1700s, and it occurs, um, I would argue, with the same dynamics, but the capital involved is these ships that they're mm -hmm. using to go to um, the other side of the world and get spices and bring them back. And that's a, that's a luxury market, and they, they actually overbuilt. I'd argue they actually over, um, you know, they got a capital bubble with those dy dy dynamics, and that's, that's why you had the South Sea bubble. Yeah, too much capital, too much financial capital. Yeah, so we are getting toward the end. Uh, I want to go around and get people's final thoughts. I think, um, you know, we talked about a lot of stuff, but I think we talked about most of the important stuff. I think the biggest thing was just the question of whether you can really have debt-free money. Uh, and my thinking is no, but let's go to Derek to get his final thoughts and then Eddie and then Richard. Yeah, um, we, we sort of passed over the first article and we're talking mostly about Crocker's view. I mean, I thought it would be interesting to go through the, the first one because that's where that question becomes more more cogent, I think, um, because they really do feel that, that the, the, um, uh, the, creation, the, the creation of sovereign debt-free money itself will, will solve the problem. But I think by nature, the fact that, that Crocker comes in and is saying, well, here's this basic income thing, it, it kind of suggests that that's not quite true. You can imagine the government creating nominally debt-free money. And, and if it's doing exactly the same things that it's doing today or doing worse things, then that we couldn't really say that would be increasing prosperity or, or the capacity of the economy. So for me, that, that's what it comes down to. Yeah, uh, go ahead, Eddie, and then Richard, and then Austin. So again, I, I think the sovereign money problem is really just solving the wrong problem. And the real problem that we, that we need to solve is the imbalance of capital and consumption and the you know the the way that uh you know the consumers you know are not are not able to have the consumption that the that the capital would otherwise provide yeah i think maybe calling it sovereign money as if it's something special is a little bit of a is a little bit of a red herring uh let's go to richard austin and then martin uh i don't really know what to say it's, i'm not really great at like complicated economic things. So I guess I'm done. Okay, that's fine. Uh, let's go to Austin, Martin, and then Bethany. I um, just want to say this has been really great. Um, and while I missed the uh, opportunity, uh, you know, uh, missed the opportunity to speak last week because we had the panel on, if you got Steve Keen and Jeff Crocker on and had a three-way panel with them trying to sort this mess out once and for all, I think that would be really uh, interesting to listen to. Um, they're both in the UK, so you have, you have only one time zone to worry about. But the, um, uh, I guess the only thing I'm not, I'm not getting is, I, I just think it's, 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 this is a really rich area to sort of mine in. But what I'm not getting is this sort of how sovereign money is the same as government debt point that you're making. And I think you should write a blog about it with diagrams going through it in like, super slow motion with lots of practical real world examples so I can understand it, please. Okay, uh, more work for me to do, but that sounds good. Uh, let's go to Bethany, or let's go to Martin and then Bethany. <clears throat> so I think in one of the articles, uh, I'll just sort of harken back to uh, what I've mentioned in some other of the talks, this idea of a claim against the productive capacity in the form of uh, sort of stock ownership that pays a dividend. And I think one of the articles 
uh, <clears throat> made sort of a passing reference to that. I'm almost going to call it a Hail Mary pass. Came at the end of the article. Um, <clears throat> and uh, so I'm surprised that that didn't come up more in the discussion. I, I have to confess that I found it a little bit difficult to follow uh, some of the discussion. Um, that is to say, I just I wasn't sure where it was trying to lead to. Um, and sometimes, you, you know, you don't call it work for nothing. And so you, there are a lot of times you talk about things and you have to have an awful lot of background knowledge and, and uh, a lot of detail to do it correctly. Um, and so maybe I just didn't understand that that was what was happening this evening. And, and therefore, I just didn't quite follow it. Yeah, sorry about that. It certainly wasn't the intention. Uh, and apologies to all of our uh, now podcast listeners out there who will be listening to this starting tomorrow. Uh, there's some complicated stuff in here. You can pause it and, and look things up. Um, but yeah, I mean, my hope was to um, my hope was to keep it simple enough uh, for, for people to kind of understand, uh, even without too much background. Um, so the idea, the idea with sovereign money is just that you can um, you can, the government can create money without having to go into debt. And then we're kind of, kind of questioning that. Uh, and then there's, there are some, some ideas that go along with that. Some people want that to be the only kind of money. And then, and then Jeff Crocker uh, wants to use that to pay for a basic income. Uh, so um, I think, I think Martin, you probably got, uh, got that much out of it. Um, but uh, as to the point of, of thinking of kind of social ownership and then a dividend, um, I think, you know, if you have a basic income that's going out to everyone, you can frame it that way. You can say, well, everyone, you know, has ownership in the economy and therefore they're getting this passive income uh, that they can use to buy things because they're all owners of the economy. Um, that's certainly one way to do it. Another thing you could just say is people need money to buy things, so we give it to them, and then you don't have to have this this story about ownership. But ownership is a valid a valid framing for it. You don't really need to do anything different with basic income to turn it into a kind of dividend. All you have to do is frame it as a dividend and say that that's what's happening. Let's go to Bethany. Final thoughts. Yeah, unfortunately, I had to miss uh, a lot of it, so um, I don't have a lot to say, but I guess one, one thought would be whether there's sort of, um, I don't know, a political or framing motivation to trying to frame money as not debt, um, because the lay understanding of debt is, um, is, is really different than maybe how it operates on the national scale. And so to get away from that could be like politically expedient. I don't know if that's part of uh, the motivation for thinking of it differently or labeling it differently. but. Yeah, I think that is part of the motivation. Uh, and certainly, uh, Jeff Crocker, when he emailed me, he said as much uh, that, you know, it's, you know, people, debt is a scary thing. People don't want it. If you say, oh, it's sovereign money that we can create, um, that's much more appealing. I think the the main issue is just whether it actually is any any different functionally. Uh, and we do have a couple more minutes here, and, and Austin wanted to know more about this. So I think let, if we talk about normal deficit spending, two things happen uh, as part of the process of deficit spending. One is that the government uh, issues sovereign money into the economy. They spend money, whether it's toward a basic income or uh, anything else. Uh, and then the second thing they do is they issue treasury securities at the same time. They issue government debt onto the market. So if they only do one of those things, um, then then that's kind of what, what Jeff Crocker is advocating for. Um, just do the part where you spend the money and don't do the part where you were, where you're issuing debt onto the market, where you're issuing government debt onto the market. Now, the thing about government debt is that the amount of it that actually ends up on the market 
is not determined by how much deficit spending there was. It's not determined by how much you know, uh, money the government added to the economy. It's determined by the central bank for monetary policy purposes. So you have this, these two things that happen at the same time, and then the, the central bank immediately jumps in and buys up any excess. Uh, and the amount that's left over is the amount that's uh, appropriate for monetary policy, that's appropriate for getting interest rates to where we want them. So in the sovereign money situation, you can imagine that the government uh, spends money into the economy, and then the central bank adds the right amount of debt uh, to match that amount of spending to keep the entire economy in balance. And it's not equal to the amount of money that the government spent, it's the, the amount that, that keeps prices stable, that gets interest rates to where you want them to be. Uh, now, in the deficit spending scenario, it's exactly the same thing, except the central bank, bank comes in and takes out the excess. Uh, Either way, you end up with the same amount of debt uh, on the market. Uh, so that's kind of, uh, kind of maybe the, simple, the simplest way to think about it is that in either case, you've got the government spending, and in either case, you end up with the same amount of debt. It's just a matter of what the central bank has to do to get there. Does it buy up the excess, or does it put more out onto the market in order to, in order to get to the same end point? Um, so, and, and then, yeah, go ahead, Austin. I was going to say thanks. That, that finally clicked. I get it now. So Derek should take that bit you just did and make it into one of his little clips that he does on <laughs> CMT because that was really, that was, a, you know, I'm, I don't have an economics degree or anything like that. So I'm always sort of, um, uh, I need to, to, to understand it and how does it work in a, in a real world example and that really helped. I'm, I'm glad that, uh, that that helped. Okay, so in terms of sovereign money and basic income, I mean, I think Jeff Crocker basically, um, you know, understands kind of the same stuff that we do in CMT, which is that, you know, the economy needs a certain amount or consumers need a certain amount of money in order to activate the economy. And then where is that money going to come from? Is it going to come from unstable private debt or can we just give them the money uh, and allow the labor market to allocate labor efficiently, allow the financial sector to allocate capital efficiently? Because if you're allocating capital for the purpose of, 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 giving money to consumers and propping up consumer spending, that's just as bad as, as creating jobs for the purpose of propping up consumers. And of course, the two things are, are connected uh, to each other. So you don't want people wasting their time doing unnecessary work, and you don't want all this financial machinery doing stuff that's completely useless either and becoming more and more unstable and then eventually collapsing. Uh, and I want to get back, we have a couple more minutes, I want to get back to the idea of, of debt jubilees, which is one of Steve Keen's proposed solutions. The problem there is that you're not fixing the underlying problem. It's like um, it's like you have a leak in your you know your engine is leaking oil and you just you just top it up every once in a while. You're not fixing the leak uh, with a basic income uh, that 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 funds consumers directly. You don't have the leak in the first place, so you don't need to uh, periodically do this compensation thing. And and the debt jubilee has this problem where if everybody's expecting a debt jubilee, uh, then I'm not going to lend to you. I'm not going to lend to you if I know that that debt is just going to get erased. So then that causes problems in the financial markets too. Um, and then you know like and then people who know about the debt jubilee and know that the debt is going to be erased and they do find a way to borrow, they're going to be like, oh, I'm just going to borrow a ton of money and then I don't have to pay it back. So so it kind of breaks the the uh, the financial sector the way it's supposed to work. What Steve King would say is that what he, he uh, suggests, which might be a partial solution to that, is that people who don't have debt would get a, um, a, a cash injection. So if I borrow and you don't, then at the day the Jubilee happens, you get the same, that amount of money as, 
as as uh, a payment to you, whereas I just get a debt uh, reduction. So there's not as much incentive, at least from the borrower's side, to borrow ahead of a jubilee. Um, uh, that would that so, that, but I I don't think that completely solves that problem. Yeah, it doesn't completely. It's like um, giving. It's like the government paying people's debt for them. Uh, and then if you're going to do that, why doesn't the government just give people their basic income so they can pay their debts in the normal way? Yeah, I think he's basically accepted that in his later work. He's, 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 he's in fact, and especially because he's talking much more now about technology and productivity and, and the production side of stuff. And he does accept that, you know, the need for labor is going to keep dropping. So he's, he's, I've heard him advocate for a basic income explicitly as well. Cool. Yeah, so it, it, would, it would be cool to have one of these with uh, Jeff Crocker and Steve Keen. Maybe we can set one up that um, is earlier in the day so it's compatible with their time zone. Uh, Jeff Crocker was saying that he would love to be here, but it's, you know, it's midnight for him and he's in Portugal doing, you know, trying to, yeah. So, so um, maybe at some point in the future, uh, we could set something like that up. Uh, I don't know how easy it would be to get to Steve Keen, but, uh, but we can look into it. All right, guys, uh, I think that's going to be it for tonight. Uh, this was a fun discussion, got pretty heated, but I think we covered most of the questions and comments that people had. Next week's topic is the social safety net. So to what extent does it make sense to think of basic income as part of a social safety net? Why do we live in a world with an economy that leaves people behind or drops people and requires them to be caught in a social safety net. And is that something uh, we can address as well? So that's next week's topic. Thanks, guys.